Hello everyone, Mike Ludwig here. This week, dozens of journalists and news publications, myself and Truthout included, signed a statement citing the thousands of scientists who say we are currently living through a climate emergency. Together, we agreed to use the term climate emergency in news stories about climate change, so you will start seeing that term pop up at major news outlets that actually grasp the severity of the crisis. Of course, Truthout has been using the terms climate crisis and climate emergency for years now. We've been trying our best to warn people that it would get this bad. On Thursday, the Senate Budget Committee held a hearing on just how bad it's getting and how much the climate emergency will cost taxpayers. Here's Committee Chairman Senator Bernie Sanders. Let's talk for a moment about rising sea levels. What the scientists have told us is that unless we reverse costs, major portions of New York City, London, and Hong Kong are at risk of chronic flooding by the end of the century, while cities like Miami, New Orleans, and Atlantic City could be inundated by severe flooding much sooner. Let's talk about extreme heat. Last year was tied for the warmest year on record, and all of the 10 warmest years in recorded history have occurred since 2005. I kind of feel like Bernie is saying, I told you so. Now, this podcast is not about politicians. It's about the people who are doing something about the climate emergency from the ground up. On our last episode, we took a look at the direct action movement, which uses civil disobedience and other tactics to block construction of oil and gas infrastructure and keep fossil fuels in the ground. We spoke with supporters of one of the longest running aerial blockades in U.S. history, which blocked construction of the Mountain Valley Pipeline for some 900 days. If you missed it, I definitely recommend checking it out. This time around, we are looking at another current within the grassroots environmental and climate movement, the Rights of Nature movement. Activists often argue about whether it's possible to create meaningful change from within the existing legal and political system. But Rights of Nature, which is inspired by indigenous thinking, has a novel proposal. Why not change the system itself? So nature is recognized to have legal rights, even in court, much like a corporation or a human being. To get to the bottom of this, I spoke with Melissa Troutman and Joshua Probanik, two journalists at the nonprofit news outlet Public Herald and directors of Invisible Hand, a documentary about the rights of nature movement. Full disclosure, Invisible Hand was made in partnership with Mark Ruffalo, the actor you may have heard of, and he also sits on Truth Out's board of advisors. Uh, without any further ado, here is the interview. So I also encountered the rights of nature movement for the first time probably about eight or nine years ago, also reporting on fracking in Ohio and Pennsylvania and wastewater injection, as well as the campaign at Grant Township. And is this is that kind of where this documentary starts for you two um, is is covering fracking and then running into, I guess, this this movement of activists is kind of like philosophy about how to take environmental action. Well, I think it's different for, you know, it's different for Melissa and it's different for myself when it comes to our involvement with rights of nature. I was involved very early when it began back in like 20, 2006 and seven in Ohio um, on projects where we were attempting to incorporate rights of nature principles into restructuring and creating local food economies um, and also businesses. So I had a publication there, which, you know, attempted to report on the environment, you know, through the means of rights of nature. 
and uh, we were working on agricultural projects that were doing the same thing. So I was particularly blown away um, by the fact that Grant Township and these groups were using rights of nature to attack fracking. And I never thought I'd see that um, that quickly. I thought it would be decades before the conversation about rights of nature really took off because it was such a difficult thing even to bring up in colleges, you know, I mean, professors would look at you like you were talking about sci-fi. Um, so it's, it's great that, you know, now it's becoming mainstream. And for me, for me, it very much was like you described, Mike, it was reporting on the harms of fracking and seeing again and again, communities and individuals run up against the same issue, which is that, they would reach out to the, the people in charge, um, so to speak, of their protection, of their environment, of their water and their air, and continually having those people not protect them. And watching people go through this process where they realize that the environmental protection laws that we have on the books aren't are actually protecting the companies the fracking companies the corporations and so naturally the question for them and for us as journalists what it became well faced with this recurring problem what what is what is a possible solution and for me seeing uh grant township being introduced to grant township who did something very fundamental in passing a rights of nature ordinance, it seemed to be the solution. And, and, and by that, I mean that what Grant Township really did was that they shifted power. Because right now, um, if you want to protect your air or your water or your family or your community from industrial harm, you can't do that unless you have the permission of the people in charge. So your state or federal regulatory agency um, who derives their power from the legislature, who uh, derives their power from campaign donations, most of which come from corporations, right? So um, the issue became much more than fracking. And the issue became where does power lie? Where does power sit? Who holds the power? And what when when I when I when I wrote the first article about Grant Township back in 2014, that was the difference in what they were doing, and that's the difference in the rights of nature movement. The night the rights of nature movement takes power out of central governments and away for and out of corporations, and and roots it in the communities in the ecosystems where harm occurs. So Grant Township passed um, a rights of nature ordinance, but inside of that, inside of that local law, Grant Township, the people who live there, are the ones who make the final decision on what happens to them, and that was groundbreaking for me as a journalist. Like I said, after watching the same problem happen over and over and over, not just in fracking, but in any industrial harm. Um, so we're talking CAFOs, you know, the big um, 
uh, factory farm operations, pesticide application. Um, I mean, you name it. About Grant. Yeah, let's talk about Grant Township, uh, the specifics of that case just a little bit. To, uh, I, I remember covering it, but not everyone would remember. But it is kind of a special case where um, an oil and gas or, or fossil fuel firm wanted to build a fracking wastewater injection well, correct, in a rural community in Pennsylvania. And they took kind of a novel route, the rights of nature route, in asserting their their rights and and opposing the project. And that's in Invisible Hand. That's in the documentary, right? It is. Yeah, mm-hmm. correct. The, the, film, the film features um, Grant Township as one of, you know, three or four stories that are that are in there. Um, and it opens with um, the Haudenosaunee prophecy and closes with the Haudenosaunee prophecy as well. Um, and could could you tell us a little bit about Grant Township and then how that begins to overlap with uh, some of the indigenous thinking, which which seems to have a lot of influence in in the rights of nature movement. Sure. Well, the rights of nature movement is <laughs> our our very Western uh, colonial capitalist attempt to insert a very fundamental principle into our legal system, and that fundamental principle is one that Indigenous people have never lost. Right as as a as a as a whole culture. So. Um, that principle is the, <laughs> the acknowledgement, recognition, and stewardship of nature as a living entity with finite limits with whom we are all extremely interconnected. Our current legal system doesn't account for that. It doesn't account for nature. It doesn't account for um, the carrying capacity of ecosystems. It's not, it's just not something that's built into our legal system. Our, in, our, in fact, in our legal system, nature is defined and considered property, not a living entity. So where this begins to overlap with indigenous knowledge is that it is essentially trying to insert indigenous knowledge into our very (laughs) colonial capitalist uh, structure of law. And, um, and it's really, it's really, really simple. I mean, we are nature, we depend on nature, nature needs to, I mean, let's just leave the right to do something out of it for a second, but nature needs to exist and thrive in order for us to exist and thrive. It's really straightforward. When I talk to this to, when I talk about this to elementary school students, they're like, yeah, duh. But when you start talking about it to um, you know, adults, it's like, yeah, but do you know if that makes sense? Yeah, that's true, but we also have all of these other things that we need to do because we created the system that we have. So rights of nature is our is an attempt to write our relationship with nature inside of our Western system of law where nature is currently defined as property, which 
when you think about it, is kind of dumb. So where does this documentary take us? You know, we're, we're learning about people. There are people and there are campaigns that are on the front lines of the climate crisis. They are directly opposing fossil fuel development and interests, which if we're going to avoid the worst impacts of climate change, we're going to have to uh, quickly reduce fossil fuel production, extraction, and consumption. So there's people on the front lines of this. And who do we meet doing that kind of work? in this documentary who are doing that kind of frontline activism. Yeah, well, the places that Invisible Hand takes the viewer um, in the film is, one, is to, to rethink everything that they've been taught um, since, you know, we all jumped into schools in the Western world. Uh, and that has to do both with capitalism, democracy, how we treat the environment, who protects the environment, you know, how our government works and everything else, because in the film, you get to see in real time that these are all fallacies. Um, the idea, you know, of the, the free market being something that's going to solve these problems. Of course, you see that playing out in the exact opposite way in the film. And it also points to this really radical transformation that's happening with capitalism, where, you know, we talk about this as like a subtext in the film, where you see how the invisible hand is shifting from something that's a human construct to something that's con controlled by nature. Uh, and I think that that theory about Adam Smith's invisible hand and human interest and profit and everything else it's tied to with these utopian ideas mm -hmm. uh, needs to be seriously challenged by academia with respect to how markets are operating with the limitations that nature is placing on them due to the exploitation that capitalism has created. So you're talking about like uh, the invisible hand of the market is a term or a phrase we hear sometimes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we hear it, all, we hear it pretty consistently in the economic realm and then it gets referred to, you know, indirectly um, in our day-to-day -day lives. But it's just this old theory, you know, that came out of Adam Smith's book, The Wealth of Nations, talking about how, you know, it's going to be the best of all possible worlds if we let the marketplace handle things, if we let competition run everything um, and that human nature, you know, your interest and my interest will align and we will create the best product for everyone. And it'll be you know, great at the end of the day. And the invisible hand will be there to balance all of that. And it's just a, a total, you know, fantasy. It's, it's no different than, you know, the utopian ideas that are inside of the communist manifesto from Karl Marx. Um, you know, these are not realistic ideas. Um, they were sold and packaged and uh, given to us as, as something that was sacrosanct. But the fact is, is that, you know, that this is not how it plays out in the real world. In the real world, profit, profit controls everything. And when profit controls everything, there's nothing in nature that can't be exploited for profit. And you get to see that in the film. So if people are faced with that circumstance, right? They're faced with the circumstance that a corporation is going to come in, they're going to make money however they want to, uh, despite if it's going to poison that drinking water, or, you know, this river or whatever. Uh, and they're inside of an emergency, right? Standing Rock is an emergency. Grant's an emergency. Defendo Hio is an emergency. The climate crisis is an emergency. Uh, and the, at the end of the day, many of these folks are coming to a realization and enlightenment in the Western culture. 
Uh, and that enlightenment is tied to indigenous knowledge, which is referring to the natural world as relatives and protecting it as a form of our life, as something that's connected to us. And that that is just part of the journey that the film takes you on. You know, it's like we've seen a lot of documentary films about the environment and what's happening, but there's not a lot of really good solutions that exist in there. And there's certainly not a movement that kind of joins everything under under one idea and under one um, under one possibility. And I feel like rights of nature has that power. It has that, has that capability. And you see that in the film and oddly enough, it ends up being uplifting. I mean, I can't believe that at the end, at the end of this film, that it ended up having like all these wins, you know, Grand Township still stopped the injection. Well, defend Ohio stopped the fracking wastewater treatment plant. Uh, Standing rock is, you know, in the works of taking out that pipeline uh, I mean, there's just some am- amazing inspirational successes that that happened in the film, which I'm not used to doing as a documentary filmmaker when it comes to the environment or when, you know, watching this kind of stuff. Yeah, there seems to be an urgency in campaigns that I've never quite seen before. And um, I'm also seeing wins or even just the ability of a small group of activists to stall a project for a long period of time um, in a way that, and, and I just wonder if that is something to do with the immediacy of the climate crisis and, and how that drives people to action. Did you, did you feel like the people you were interacting with uh, making this documentary felt that urgency? Did you feel that urgency? Well, I, I, I mean, Melissa and I certainly felt an urgency to, to capture that energy uh, because we could see that energy you know, vibrating around the story with Grant Township or with what happened with Standing Rock or or Triple Divide and Defend Ohio. I mean, what do you think, Melissa? I mean, I feel like it was right there on the surface for everything and kind of still is at this point. You know, we're all kind of on edge. Yeah, I mean, this... It's, it's the energy around this movement in particular is really palpable and and exciting and feels a little weird in the sense that it's new. This is a new strategy, new relative to what we've been doing for decades and decades. This is relatively new. And, you know, there are many ways to stall um, a a harmful project from going going into effect or from, or, um, but the, the rights of nature movement is is not just that it's that it's stopping immediate harm and fixing a fundamental flaw in our system that perpetuates the hamster wheel and by that i mean keeps creating more and more problems that we have to get out in the streets and stop or out in the you know, the watersheds and stop. So how do we get off the hamster wheel? Well, in order to do that, we have to shift power out of where it currently is, which is in the hands of centralized uh, governments and who have bent the arc of justice towards corporations and get it back into the hands of the people. Well, how do you do that? You have to change the law because the law is what dictates the rules. 
that we live by. And so, and the privileges that are bestowed upon us or corporations. And so it's, it's a new strategy, which makes it really exciting. But in short, for me, it just, it was the absolute thing that we had to cover because it gets to the fundamental problem that keeps producing more and more problems for us to fight. So if we can fix this I and we can criminal go, I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. If we fix the fundamental flaw in our legal system that perpetuates environmental injustice, ecological destruction, white supremacy, racism, I mean, rights of nature touches all of these things. Because if you honor nature, if you honor non-human, non-humans, then you also, of course, honor all humans because we are part of nature. And so by changing the law to criminalize the harm of nature, which includes people, um, you just, it's, it's a game changer. It shifts the paradigm and it, it changes, it just completely changes the game. And the question, and Mike, one of the other things that just to, just to add to Melissa's story there is that, you know, when what was captured by Melissa and myself and our team um, were stories where there was no one else there, no other journalists, you know, no other cameras in most cases. Um, so when the viewer is watching this in invisible hand, um, they're seeing these things for the first time. And I think that that resonates powerfully um, to everyone because it's not kind of like the buzz, you know, that we all get to watch on Twitter or wherever. Um, it's just a, a really unique experience, you know, to, to hear these stories and watch them this way for the first time. And these are stories kind of from the front lines of environmental campaigns and from campaigns against the fossil fuel industry. Yes. Yeah. At, right at the front lines. I mean, Melissa and I are right there um, with the leaders of these groups in trying to document, um, you know, as honestly as possible what's happening. Uh, you know, and as a result of that, of course, um, because we're at the forefront of this and we're getting attacked by the industry PR groups, uh, you know, the, the part in the film where we're um, threatened with a lawsuit by uh, JKLM Energy, who's the owner of Buffalo Bills and one of the biggest billionaires in the shale industry. Um, his name's Terry Pagula. Uh, and then, you know, we also are threatened with a lawsuit by the people who wanted to build the frack waste water treatment facility. Um, and that is just us individually. The folks who are leading these fights, they're facing even greater threats. They're being sued by the industry. Um, they're having hundreds of thousands of dollars campaigned against their rights of nature bills by, for instance, BP with the Lake Erie bill of rights in Ohio, which we capture in the film. Um, and they're being sued individually as well, or, or attempted to be sued or threatened. And they're also getting state legislators working against them with uh, preemption bills, trying to preempt and stop um, rights of nature from ever getting into the court in the first place. So while, you know, 
the attempts are being made by the rights of nature movement through ecocide and other things to attempt to criminalize acts against the environment. The corporations are right there and they are, of course, attempting to criminalize any kind of good faith action to protect the environment. And I think we see that very clearly with what happened with Standing Rock and the uh-huh. critical infrastructure bills that have come out of that. And then we see it even more clearly with what's happening to Steve Donzinger um, with the ExxonMobil case, who's been in, under house arrest for 600 plus days at this point. Uh, you know, they want to use the RICO Act to attack these people who are organizing to defend nature against oil and gas infrastructure. And, and, and it's Steve yeah, Donziger, it's a scary course, situation. Is, he's working in the Amazon, right? He, he, was, he represented indigenous people who were fighting a ExxonMobil for accountability for an oil spill. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, he, he, he is responsible for being part of a lawsuit down in Ecuador that resulted in the largest fine ever issued against an oil and gas company. Um, I mean, the precedent that they set in those courts uh, was worldwide and it changed the game. And Chevron still hasn't paid a single dime of that. And instead of trying to pay it, what they're trying to do is attack the main attorney and his character and demonize this person through a ju- judge named uh, Kaplan over in New York. Right. And the New York Times hasn't even published a story about the, the thing, even though this guy's been under house arrest for 600 days. You know, they're relying upon people like, you know, independent journalists that are running organizations like we have, um, you know, Amy Westerville over at the Drilled Podcast did an amazing series on Steve and what happened there. And, you know, that's what the oil and gas companies want to do. They, they want to create a precedent to attack anybody who's going to come after their industry whether it's through rights of nature, blocking pipelines, um, you know, blocking compressor stations. And if they can get somebody like Steve locked up and put him in jail for doing what he did as a lawyer, uh, they're just going to use that to package a new bill, whether it's critical infrastructure or something else, um, to attack people. So people just need to be very aware because, you know, the industry is spending a lot of time, a lot of resources to, to stop rights of nature actions and other actions against oil and gas. But we've also, you know, there's other strategies, right? Um, and we've just heard about some of them. I mean, a direct action activist will argue that if you set up a tree sit or a blockade and you stop a pipeline or something for a period of time, then, that, then you know, you're succeeding in stopping this project. And rights of nature is a little bit different. It, it's about changing laws. And I think it's interesting that, that, Joshua, you brought up that there's been several victories, several campaigns have seen victories. But at the same time, it's it's been difficult to actually get laws changed, like in Ohio with the Lake Erie Bill of Rights, which was passed in Toledo after the um, the algae blooms in Lake Erie made the water toxic. That you know it really brought it to people's attention. But a a judge ended up, or was it a judge or the state legislature ended up overturning that uh, citizens referendum, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. And I've, all, and I've seen that in other parts of the world where rights of nature has been trying to be implemented, where it just didn't get too far into the system. And I think there would be an argument to be made that the rights of nature approach is too much within the system. Um, although you are talking about the fact that we need to change the way that system works to uh, redistribute the balance of power. So I'm, so I'm interested to know if, if, if after doing this much you know, reporting and documenting on the movement, do you think it has, do you think it can work? Do you think we can change the laws? 
Well, you bring up Toledo and I think that's an important case because it's not finished. Right. You know, it's not the nail isn't in the coffin on what happened with Toledo. And that case is still ongoing. And there was a ruling by both the courts, which attempted to say that the rights of nature bill was too vague. That's one of the arguments against it. And of course, that the rights of nature bill attacked the constitutional rights of the industry, which is the other arguments that the industry um, is is filing in courts, the complaints they're filing. And that's true in the Grant Township case. Grant Township has a lawsuit against them by the industries right now saying that Grant Township's in violation of the, you know, First Amendment, uh, Fifth Amendment, Fourteenth Amendment. Uh, you know, they just go up and down the rights that they have as legal people um, to say Grant's violating those rights. And this is happening in pretty much all rights of nature cases. But you got to look at it as this isn't a this isn't a tool in the toolbox as people like to call it. Mm. Uh, rights of nature is not a tool. Okay, it is a it is a way it is something that exists as an inalienable thing to the environment. Just like our rights, we have inalienable rights. So does so does nature. We're just simply recognizing them. Mm-hmm. So I think it can work absolutely because you know all it's doing is. Uh, getting people to be aware, to be enlightened of that fact, and then mobilize around that idea. And that's what they're doing. They're mobilizing around it. And one of the big problems with the the, the winds with, you know, a pipeline here or a compressor station here is there's nothing joining them, you know, philosophically other than, you know, the fight to protect nature. The rights of nature does join those movements in a way that I think is powerful enough um, to bring them all together, unify them and build an alliance that could be worldwide and actually finally take on these systemic, um, destructive ecocidal practices that are happening. Yeah. I, to, to tag on to what Josh has said, rights of nature isn't a tool in the toolbox. It is, it's part of Rights of nature is a part of an ecosystem of change. Um, It's a major piece of that ecosystem. So, you know, rights of nature only works in your community if you have a majority of people who support that that kind of change in the community. Um, And if you don't have that majority of people, it makes a lot more sense to get the six people that you have to sit in trees, right? Um, we just saw the unfortunate final day of the yellow finch tree sit in Virginia, um, over 900 days, activists sat in those trees and prevented that pipeline from going through. And, you know, that's really significant. I think that, you know, for me, whether you're working in whether you're using direct action or you're using kind of, well, actually for me, direct action kind of makes more sense as a tactic than piecemeal policy change. But whether you're doing direct action or you're engaging in piecemeal policy, and by that I mean you're, you're tweaking policy about a particular part of, the, of a problem, um, that all has to happen in tandem with fundamental system change. Otherwise, the system perpetuates 
and you keep having to spend, you keep having ecological destruction that you then have to go and try to stop, right? So if, <laughs> unless you change the game and you have that paradigm shift, which is what rights of nature is. And if you, th if you think about, and, you know, and like you said, Mike, this is, this is a movement that is constantly facing obstacles as far as legal challenges, um, not just in the United States, but in other places too, but mostly in the U.S. But at the same time, if you think about the, the movement to end slavery or the movement to give women the vote or the civil rights movement, there were a lot of legal challenges in those long, long fights. And there were other tactics to, to prevent harm in the immediate. But if they're not happening alongside a movement for systemic change, then there's no real evolution to, out of perpetual harm. So I, I'm, I think this can work. And, and the evidence that I use to come to that conclusion is the Google alerts that I am getting on a, on a daily basis on rights of nature that even three years ago were maybe one every few months. I mean, just today, um, I got an alert from the Earth Law Center, um, which is a great organization that works not just in rights of nature, but earth jurisprudence and of earth law in general. But they just today announced that Oaxaca, Mexico, recognized nature as a collective entity in a constitutional amendment. So that's a, yet another country, or I'm sorry, um, province within a country, but it's happening at the national level too, where rights, the rights of nature are being recognized. And in places where that has been recognized, you know, a decade or more ago, it's now beginning to be enforced. So Ecuador passed the National Constitutional Amendment um, to recognize the rights of nature in what, 2008, Josh? So that was how many years ago? 12, 13. Um, but it took, yeah. it took nine years for, for the enforcement of that to actually take place. So, I do think it's going to work because watching the arc of the movement, um, it's it's accelerating exponentially, um, and it's it's moved from um, a value based proclamation or recognition into actual enforcement, and is being tied into an even greater international movement to criminalize ecological destruction. And, and and shift power back into communities, reinstate indigenous knowledge inside of our societal structures. So it's going to take time. But it's, I mean, we yeah. really don't, and we also, I just we really don't to... have a choice, do we? <laughs> we really right. don't have a choice. Right. We, we either we... do it willingly or nature does it for us. Which and I just want to clarify, when you say criminalize, <laughs> you don't really mean like criminalizing people. You mean like criminalizing corporate acts against the environment. 
Well, there's two there's two versions of that. There's there's both one that's criminalizing corporate acts against the environment, which would hold, of course, corporations accountable. Um, that's happening through ecocide, but there's also, and that can happen through rights of nature bills. But it's all there's also the in the ecocide structure of things, attempting to create criminal prosecution for individuals. So not just corporations themselves, but CEOs would be held accountable under that kind of law that's being discussed and proposed, you know, in Europe right now. Um, and it's in the early stages of it. And we feel like that's kind of, you know, it's a, it's an evolution of the rights of nature to get to that point where, um, the criminalization of acts against nature becomes a reality. And we're not necessarily building prisons to lock everybody up to protect capitalism, but we're more or less, um, you know, locking people up who are destroying our natural world. So where can people see Invisible Hand? Oh, well, there's a, a lot of options on our screening page. So if you go to invisiblehandfilm.com slash screenings, uh, there's a number of screenings happening in, in April. Um, some on some really, you know, cool things that you can get involved with. Uh, issues along the Mississippi River. Um, there's a show happening, I think, uh, 23rd to 25th. On that, Melissa, isn't that right? Um, yes. That <laughs> We're part of a lot of events. What day? What day is it again? Um, so, oh yeah, it's Tuesday. I think twenty third <laughs> through twenty fifth. There's a show um, <laughs> happening in Alaska as well. That in the, I think around April twenty second, on the gold mining issues, and if folks can usually attend these for free. Um, but they're great to get involved in the show because there's a Q and a that happens locally with people. And then you can find out about, you know, what's, what are the gold mining issues in Alaska that we don't get to read about, or, you know, what are the water issues facing the Mississippi river and who's involved with that? Uh, how do you get in touch with them? And it just, it's helpful to hear from them. So you can find out, you know, what your role can be in this. If you're not, you know, if you don't have a pipeline in your backyard, if you're, fracking industry is not trying to build an injection well, you know, next to your house. Uh, there's other ways that this can happen. Some of that has to do with just being shareholders of Sierra Club. <laughs> I mean, just like people are pushing uh, shareholders to do the right thing in um, corporations. Um, this is true for the environmental movement. If you're a shareholder of an environmental organization and that organization has no rights of nature platform, um, you could lobby them to start doing that because if you're part of a national organization, there's a very good chance that there is no rights of nature platform, oddly enough, even though this is happening explosively uh, in communities all over the world. So, yeah, definitely just go to the film. You can become a Patreon member of Public Herald, which supports our work as investigative journalists that we've been doing since 2011. Uh, you can get the film for as little as a dollar. Uh, and just go to patreon.com slash public herald to do that or go to our main website. I don't know if Melissa, you have any other suggestions for people. You nailed it. See the film. <laughs> you nailed it. I think, and I, I agree, Josh, I think the I've best place is to go to that screenings page and, and, and join a community screening because the, the people hosting those are the people at the front lines. So it's, it's always good to, get that frontline perspective to see the film and talk about the film um, with the folks that are doing the work. 
Right, well, the film is Invisible Hand. It's a documentary about rights of nature. And thanks so much for doing that, that documenting reporting and for uh, joining us on Climate Front. Oh, thank you, Mike. It's good to, good to be here. Looking for more stories about the movements that are changing the world? Go to truthout.org and sign up for our daily newsletter. You can also support our journalism, which is always free to everyone all the time, by going to truthout.org slash donate. Thanks for listening to Climate Frontlines. If you like this podcast, let us know by liking and sharing and all those other good things. And I hope to see you next time. Until then, stay safe. And remember, where there's a movement, there is hope.